Hi, this is Elliot Rocket, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, Ben, welcome to another fine episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Cinepod, as we sometimes call it. That's uh, right. It's nice and short, just rolls off the tongue. It does. It does. You know, it's as if we could go back in time that we might have just called it that in the first place. We could have. We should have. But it is sort of a nice contraction of cinematography and podcast. Cinepod kind of just plugs in together really nicely. Just fits like right in there. Just fits perfectly. So, Ilya, who do we have on the show today? Uh, we have Elliot Rocket, who, I, I mean, you were just talking about a couple weeks ago. I guess he's a listener of the show. He heard the show and uh, reached out to us and bim, bam, boom. You guys got to have a, have a chat and we're going to hear it in just a minute. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, he's an amazing guy. He's shot a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff that I have seen and loved over the years going all the way back to there's a Lemonheads music video for uh, probably I think it's the Lemonheads biggest hit. Uh, it's a shame about Ray. Oh, he that's sh- right. He shot the video for that. <laughs> nice. And with all my yammering on and on about horror movies, it was interesting to talk to him because he's someone who's well known for horror movies, not just the Ty West movies, but he shot a movie for Toby Hooper. He shot a movie that I saw at Sundance years ago about the Night Stalker called The Night Stalker. He's done a lot of horror stuff and he himself is not a fan of horror, but he talks a little bit about what he loves about shooting horror, which I think people will find very fascinating. I remember coming up in the late 90s in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, his name was uh, thrown around quite a bit. As I think he was in the area. I think he was yep. one of those guys. And once or twice almost met him, almost worked with him. It just it just never happened. But uh, I'm, gl- I'm really glad that he's uh, out there doing it now. And we had him on the show, which is fantastic. Yeah, super nice guy doing Perry Mason right now, doing lots of big TV stuff. Just an amazing guy. I'm so excited that we had him on there. And he also talks about the quasi-prequel to X which is called Pearl, and people who watch X and sit all the way through the credits will see a trailer that they shot back-to-back with X for Pearl. So we kind of got a little bit of a preview of uh, what people have to look forward to with Pearl. That's awesome. So, Ben, what's our close focus this time? What are we, what are we talking about? Well, I mean, sometimes there's, like, when there's a Will Smith slap in the world, <laughs> uh, we kind of have to talk about it, and yeah. this week's Will Smith smack... <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrible way to put something. It, is, it's Netflix laying the smackdown on its customers. Is that what you're going to yeah, say? Yeah, <laughs> well, it's Netflix laying the smackdown on its customers and its customers laying the smackdown on Netflix and yeah. their their stock price tumbling. And it was a ridiculous number of people. What was it, like 20 million people unsubscribed or something? I think I thought they only announced a 200,000 negative. I don't think it was quite 20 million. I think it was like 200,000 they, they lost. I, I, I'm going to just let my idiocy stand instead of asking Ben Katz <laughs> to cut that out, because what do I know about anything? 20 million is a lot of people. It, it is lose. a lot of people. I think they lost 200,000, and yeah. that's a big deal for them. It's and just two orders of magnitude off of what I said. Anyway. Okay, here's here's the real thing. According to Rotten Tomatoes, Netflix lost 200,000 subscribers in the first three months, but could shed as much as 2 million in the second quarter. 
So, so I was correcting that it was a two with a bunch of zeros after it. After that, I was right. completely wrong. But I'm going to take a victory lap and say I was right the whole time. <laughs> You're right. You, you, sh- you should take that lap. So in response to that, their stock price fell by like 30%. Elon Musk got on his high horse and started tweeting about that the reason that Netflix was losing customers was because of a wokeness virus. Which, you know, it's like all the other inane stuff that Elon Musk is, is tweeting. And then Netflix announced that they are looking now into two things. One, cutting out the sharing of passwords, or they're not talking about an official ban of that because they famously tweeted and promoted in 2017 they wanted people to share their passwords because they wanted more eyeballs on their service. Uh, now they're saying, well, we're, we're, we're not really into that, but we think what we're going to do is just charge a little bit extra for those extra people. And they said that they might go after the people who are really rampant about it, who are sharing it like, you know, amongst 15 households or something oh, like that. But for yeah, most that people fix out it. there, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that's going to make them more popular. I, All I, fine. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, nothing nothing really uh, makes a service. I mean, if I learned one thing from Napster back in the day, nothing uh, makes someone love a service more than when people try and sue them and crack down and when they start being real dicks about what they do. Oh, boy. I think, actually, Netflix has been riding high for so long and they have so much competition now. It was only a matter of time before something like this happened. But I have to say that uh, apologies to some of the, the really, really great Netflix programming. But at least for me, it seems like lately they're really pushing like married at first sight and some other sort of middle of the road garbage reality programming. And I don't know if that's because they just don't have a lot of new stuff and they've acquired some old catalog titles and they're throwing it out there. But I really don't like the Netflix interface. I certainly prefer like Hulu's and actually several others because I feel like it's a bit more predictable and it seems to understand who I am a bit better. And it doesn't just show me the same seven titles across 30 categories, which I think is a complete waste. I mean, really, Netflix, I think, has to keep innovating. Otherwise, the customers are like like me. And I still get the DVD plan. So it's like I'm one of the most expensive. I know. I don't want to tell you how long I've had the current DVD I have. What too, DVD is I, it? Just tell me which, uh, what the movie is. It's a, actually a Japanese horror film. <laughs> I, okay. I can't remember what the title is off the top, oh, uh, man. top of my head right now. I, I have a theory about the Netflix thing. And part of it is that they keep jacking their prices up. And at this point, they're one of the more expensive of the streaming services. But also, you know, like they created this kind of like they're the innovators. Before them, nobody was really doing what they do, which is amazing. They created an entire new market for films and filmmakers. And, you know, so many people that we've talked to on this show are earning their living on Netflix. And I think they do some pretty amazing work. But what ended up happening was all of the studios realized that they could compete with this. And so you've got probably most notably Disney Plus, you know, Disney pulled all the Marvel stuff off of there. And some of their really cool streaming shows not just a few years ago were like Jessica Jones and Daredevil and stuff like that. That's now on Disney Plus. Those exact shows that were made for Netflix, the the actual episodes have left Netflix and they're on Disney Plus. And Warner Brothers did the same thing with HBO Max. And even though it has been underperforming for Warner Brothers to some degree, I think it's starting to pick up. And then obviously things like Hulu. And I must admit, I don't think the programming on Netflix, sometimes they do something like Ozark. It's amazing. But I feel like they're competing now with Apple and Amazon Prime. And you, you want to talk about a messy fucking interface. Amazon Prime's interface is a dog's breakfast. It's all over the place. <sighs> 
Yeah. But <laughs> they have really good content on there. So well, they have everything. I mean, they, they really have like a huge amount of stuff. So including what their original like yeah. their original stuff is great. Like uh, their marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Ms. I mean, they, yeah, they, I was just about to say Maisel. That's a perfect example. Patriot. I can't wait for them to bring that back. I'm, I'm so excited yeah. about that. Yeah, they, so. they're, I mean, they're doing good stuff. And I feel like Netflix. I agree with you. I feel like they haven't been taking the big swings lately. It's been kind of conservative in middle of the road. They, you know, they've got good stuff in the pipeline. I, I am excited about the Sam Esmail film that's coming, but I don't want to say they're resting on their laurels because they've expanded, you know, around the world. They've got really incredible technical people behind the scenes who make the entire service happen. And I supposedly their metrics and data about their customers and everything else is second to none. But at the same time, the actual experience, I think, as a customer has definitely gone down and I, I gotta say that they're like hey surprise me with something to watch is about as bad as what they used to have this thing called Max which uh, which they mercifully got rid of which was like this uh, AI type of service that was gonna pick what you liked it's never been good at picking things for me it picked one good thing which I'm eternally grateful for they, they picked Luther which I didn't know anything about Luther but it was kind of like you know even a stopped clock is right twice a day and this was like one of those yeah. things like you know Luther was great I'm sure I would have uh, encountered it at some point if someone had uh, tipped me off to it but instead I then became that person telling about Luther for to all my friends yeah it's uh Netflix is they charge a lot and frankly I do enjoy the experience of finding content on some other services because I feel like I can do it easier it's like Netflix kind of like buries the search They're, The search results are not exactly what I want I, I want a much better Netflix If they can they can do that and not give me like You know crappy new Facebook Something like that I think I'll be I'll be You know I uh, on board with I, it I mean like for the last several months I've just been noticing Like my own viewing habits and After the recent season of Of Ozark I really I would launch Netflix dick around In it for five minutes and then be like Yeah and then yeah. I would go on Hulu and find so many great things or, you know, or Prime or, you know, I mean, I feel like a hundred percent. I agree. You know, not that there isn't good work done on Netflix, but I, I've just in general, their programming has been drawing me less. And when they do an original movie, I feel like it just goes away. Like it's like it'll maybe be on their splash page for a day or two. There's not really advertising. There's no hoopla. It's like, here's a new movie you never heard of. And then it's gone. It's sort of like in the DVD days where you'd be like, you know, at, at a Target and there's like a shelf of movies you've never heard of. I made one of those movies, by the way, and <laughs> uh, shelf of movies you never heard of. And they're charging 20 bucks for it. I feel like Netflix is sort of doing that a little bit. Yeah. And I feel like the other services, you know, like when something original is coming out on HBO Max, they make a big deal out of it. I appreciate what HBO Max is done and all these services anyway it's interesting it'll be interesting to see what netflix does i think netflix has taken a lot of risks they've thrown a lot of spaghetti at the wall and they get some things that hit and they get some things that don't and i feel like the apple tvs and the amazons and even the hbos are far more strategic we're taking a, a bet on this we're taking a gamble on this we're putting big money behind it we're really we're really going for it and I feel like Netflix is like, we can do Christmas movies. Oh, we can do reality shows. Oh, we can do a reality show about that. We can do a documentary. We can do there. There isn't a single genre that they are not in. And I don't think that all of their stuff is the best. So, I mean, that's that's I think what it comes down to. It's like, you know, if I'm looking at like, you know, average quality of, of shows uh, because Netflix is doing so much content, not all of them can be winners. I think it's hard. For, I think it's hard to do it that way. You know, can, can I make a suggestion to Netflix here? Hmm. Yeah. Famously, uh, Jeff Bezos bought MGM like they mm. bought a studio. And that means that Amazon Prime is going to have everything in the MGM catalog going back to the beginning of film history. 
I think Netflix should buy one of these companies. I think I don't know who's on the chopping block. Just imagine if Netflix bought Sony. Lionsgate. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Lionsgate would be great, but if they got like a like a major studio, Sony, which used to be Columbia, which again has like stuff going back, you know, through through the decades and decades of stuff, you know, then Netflix would own uh, Ghostbusters. You know, like I agree. go on and on about the stuff that they would own, and then they could exploit nostalgia or whatever on all of those properties. And I think it would just be more interesting, like, because right now Netflix is really, because everyone's pulled their content off of Netflix, now Netflix is kind of more on its own in terms of creating stuff or legacy titles from, I don't know which libraries, but Netflix is going to need, I don't feel like I have an idea of what the Netflix identity is. And I think that's the problem. I know what Disney is. I know what HBO Max is. Well, I think it's actually maybe more likely that Netflix is the <laughs> the acquiree. I think that one of the other services out there, now that their stock price has gone down, they might be the target because they got a lot of subscribers. They got a lot of heat behind them. And if they could feed into an Apple TV or they could feed into a Disney or something else, it's just more consolidation. And, you know, we were talking about last week with, with Nielsen, how Nielsen said that there's all this confusion in the marketplace, which, you know, I understand there's mm. probably too many services for all the customers, which you and I agree with. And it seems like a lot of other people out there as well. And with the intention of wanting to have bundling, Netflix might need to, I think, update their interface, figure out how to tailor their service more to what it is that their their customers want, or do something to bring some of those back catalog titles further forward, because you're right, it really is. It's like, it's there for a day, it's there for two, and then it's gone. They're far more concerned about what's in the top 10 in the country right now than it feels like to me giving me quality stuff and or stuff that's uh, appropriate to me. And they don't have a lot of personality. So you're mm. right. I, I, I agree with all of that. I think that it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Netflix. But yeah, I think that one of the other players out there might want to swallow them. We'll see. That will be interesting. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and move on to the interview with Elliot Rocket. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I'm here. We're actually both in L.A. at the same time, but not in the same room uh, with uh, Elliot Rocket. Elliot shot uh, the movie that I was talking about on the show just a few weeks ago. Uh, Ty West's amazing new horror. I think it's fair to say slasher movie X. Just an amazing, amazing film that I can't stop talking to everyone about. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Elliot. Well, thanks for having me. It's just this is great. So let's dive in. I want to hear about X, but also I have so many questions about Ty West. Ty West is like a wizard, in my opinion, in in the way that he paces his films. There's a lot of people out there who say they like to make a slow burn movie. And a lot of times I'll watch those movies and be like, oh, you could only think of three things to happen in your movie. Ty West does this slow burn thing. And I want to know how conscious it is on set or how conscious it is, because you've shot several of his movies, but two of them that have these amazing slow burns, the other one being House of the Devil, where it's like it burns and burns and burns. And as an audience member, I lose my ability to guess where the scare is coming from. So when it happens, it's actually extremely surprising every time. Is that something you guys talk about or is that just something that's baked into the script? Like, where does that come from? Well, you know, X and then the, the prequel that we shot right after Pearl or the fourth and fifth movies I've shot for Ty, I think. And I wouldn't say per se, like the slow burn thing is like a conscious thing as much as just sort of, I think the filmmaking aesthetic and the the ideas about cinema are very shared between he and I. So with all the movies that I've shot for him, there's been a, a long process in the beginning of talking about the script. It, it starts way back when he's writing them usually. 
and, you know, a lot of conversations, a lot of reading drafts, a lot of talking about what it is, what it's going to be, what we're going to do. And by the time we get around to actually being out on set, what the movie is, is kind of already, I think, pretty well understood by both of us, you mm. know? And it's funny because sometimes we barely talk at all on set, you know, because it's just like, well, yeah, this is what we're doing. Like, we just know, <laughs> uh, you know? And and often it's, I think it's a mark of a good collaboration between a director and a DP that like, you know, if Tom wants to do something, I'm like, well, of course, that's what we should do because that just makes total sense to me. And on a whole movie narrative level of like, how the drama is going to unfold or, you know, if it's a slow burn type of thing or, or where the movie is going at any narratively at any particular moment, it just makes a lot of sense to me, like what he wants to do. And so collaborating to get that done is generally very easy between the two of us. Well, and those two movies that I just mentioned, but others aren't all like this, like the innkeepers, for instance, is not, is not done in the style, but they're almost, they're period pieces that are almost done in the style of a movie that would have been made at that time. Like we're used to seeing a, a period piece as something that's filmed in a modern way. And I remember watching house of the devil at fantastic fest. I want to say it was in like 2009 and just being like blown away. It was just a mind blowing idea that you would make a period piece that looked like it was made the year that it was set in, as opposed to using modern techniques and, and a modern look, but kind of consciously choosing this throwback technique. How did that come about? You know, I don't remember specifically the conversations about that with House of the Devil. I do remember very specifically that that was what we were doing. It's not only a period piece on the inside of the movie, but the entirety of the movie itself is a period piece, yeah. sort of, you know. And that's sort of one of these overarching creative decisions or aesthetic decisions that gets made. And then you go down that road, you know, yeah. um, as best you can. I mean, it's not. We didn't do everything technically exactly like you would have done it in 1979 or something on X, but a lot of the fixtures, a lot of the the look and the, the feel of it was just heavily informed by that. You know, I think you're right. Like a lot of period things are just period on the inside and people are hesitant, I guess, to back away from what a modern film would look and feel like. And so you end up with a period piece is a thing that is just a story set in a different time. It's not the entire movie being something that looks like it was lifted out of a different time. Well, and, and to me, that's what's kind of fun about it is when you see movies like this, it feels like some movie that I, you know, rented on VHS in the 80s, you know, and my parents let me watch. It feels they like let, they didn't know you were watching my parents. Yeah, my, my parents <laughs> had no idea what I was watching. But um, <laughs> but and I feel like that actually lends to kind of a forbidden fruitness. I mean, like, let's talk a little bit about X, because I see so many influences that it kind of in a way, wears on its sleeve in a great way. Like, you've worked with Toby Hooper, but there's definitely a Texas Chainsaw Massacre thing going on. But also, like, there's a shot early in the movie that I was like, that's a shot right out of Boogie Nights, almost. It's when she's snorting coke, and you're, like, pushing that you're dollying in you on know, her. You know, that's actually, that was a, a real Martin Scorsese reference. Oh. The tie was very clear about that. It was like, look at all these shots in these Scorsese movies that do this dollying in and zooming in simultaneous thing. Mm -hmm. We will do that, that here. You know, that, I mean... It's rare that there is such a, like on a shot level reference with Ty, you know, there, there's certainly cultural references and cinematic references that are bigger, but that actual shot right there was one that was very much, this is the kind of shot we will do. And uh, you were mentioning off mic right before we started that this is the first collaboration that you've done with Ty where you shot digitally, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So we first, the first movie I did with him was the um, sequel to Cabin Fever, the Cabin Fever 2, which was a movie that he didn't write and he had gotten hired to do. And it was a sort of very different experience than all the rest. And then we did House of the Devil, which was on 16. 
Innkeepers, which is on 16, and then X and Pearl were the first ones that we moved into the digital world. And uh, I'm not like best buddies with Ty, but I've known Ty for a long time. And in 2003, my manager at the time reached out to me. I had just shot a short digitally, and he asked me if I would be willing to share some of it with Ty. And, and Ty was getting ready to make his first movie, which was called The Roost, which I believe Larry Fessenden helped, helped him to get made. Yeah, Larry was involved in a lot of his early. Uh, and there was just that Larry Fessenden retrospective at Museum of Modern Art in New York just ended, I think, on the 19th of April. And there was two of Ty's movies, or two that I shot were in there, The Innkeepers and House of the Devil, and then another movie that I shot that Larry produced called Liberty Kid. Mm-hmm. Um, Larry is a big part of all of this, for sure. Yeah, I feel like somebody needs to make a documentary or write a book about Larry Fessenden because he really has been, in a quiet and very interesting way, a humongous influence, uh, especially on genre filmmaking. And then, you know, and you'll see him pop up in things like Jacob's Wife just as an actor and just be, you know, amazing. Or, you know, like I, I often cite his movie Wendigo, you know, like he's, mm-hmm. he's yeah. an amazing filmmaker himself. I, I first saw, uh, I think the first movie of his I ever saw was Habit. I would maybe equate him to like, maybe he's like the East Coast Adam Green, where like Adam is always like helping out other, you know, genre filmmakers get their stuff done. And uh, although uh, Larry's, you know, a generation before, but, uh, you know, just, just does such interesting work. Anyway, Ty asked if he could look at this thing, which we had shot on the, oh my God, I don't remember the camera. It was a Panasonic standard def 24p camera and I put together a DVD of I was still editing I just kind of pulled some selects and sent it off to him and uh, and he gave me a thanks in the roost uh, special thanks but he also you know proceeded to shoot the roost which had a, an extremely low budget but he still shot it on 16 and I I kind of admire the fact that he did that and then he kind of stuck to film so what made him decide to not go with film on this one you know it was a it was a definitely a discussion at the beginning, you know, and, but he's, you know, he's been directing in TV for a while now and been in a lot of different situations. And, uh, you know, the technology and especially the Venice has just come to a point where it's like, I think the benefits are just outweighing whatever downsides there were for him, you know? Um, and I think also at this point you can very convincingly, like you said, I mean, still X feels like it came out of the air. A lot of people have asked me like, well, did you shoot it on film? You know? Because you can very convincingly emulate that kind of a look for sure with this camera now. And, and in the past, you know, I, I don't know, even with like the Airy products, I don't even know if it's really quiet as possible. But now it's like, you know, you can do that and you also get the benefit of budgetarily, you know, not spending the money, being able to do a lot of takes, being able to free yourself from the dailies workflow and the uncertainties and you know like in New Zealand where we were shooting it's like had we done film it would have been this weird thing where we'd have to ship it off I think the lab that they had found was in Thailand or something it was just like this is going to be a disaster you know so So you shot New Zealand for Texas yeah there was talk when it was first getting written of going to Georgia and then it very quickly turned into we're going to go to New Zealand because it was going to end up being winter in Georgia and the COVID protocols and stuff uh tied really didn't want to have to deal with that making this movie and so they just turned on and said let's go to New Zealand and you know we went down to New Zealand and shot it you know and that's also some one of the benefits of digital is like you are looking at what is in in essence the final product there when you're on set monitoring or you know something very very close to it so you can be mindful all through the process very uh, directly as you're making each shot that like, okay, this is looking right, you know? And there was, there would be an occasional time where like, we'd put up a shot and get it together and get it going. And it'd be like, there's just something wrong with this shot. Like the way the light's playing and the way the camera takes it, it just sort of suddenly is drifting into kind of a video-y look. And mm. I couldn't even tell you exactly 
why it's sometimes a combination of like depth of field and the particular focal length of the lens and like how hard or soft the light is. And it just occasionally becomes like, huh, that one's not working. You know, we got to fix that. So it's kind of just a matter of like, you know, keeping an eye on it and having a, a, an awareness of like what you're going for and making sure that you're kind of always going for that and not just sort of doing whatever you need to do to get the shot done or whatever. Yeah. Well, let's kind of broaden the scope a little bit more because you've worked on a lot of horror stuff, including for horror master. Toby Hooper obviously famously did the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but you've done a lot of horror. Was horror a thing that you were drawn to when you started in the industry? Not at all. Like the giant irony of it is I'm not a horror fan. No. <laughs> no. I mean, like. Uh, Have you become one? No, I, you know, I, I will appreciate it now more, but like I, just, I don't like the feeling of being made anxious and tense, you know, <laughs> it's, it's never been my thing. But, but the thing about it is that in terms of cinema, in terms of what you're doing with a camera and in its role in telling a story, horror is really interesting because it makes real use of that, right? Like what the shot is doing is really important in a horror movie, right? Like in a, for lack of a better example, a rom-com, you can largely have shots that are just sort of explanational about like, these people are saying these things and I'm following the story through that. But if you want to drag someone through something very suspenseful and very tense, it's not about like people saying things. It's about understanding human bodies moving through space and different points of view and the understanding that like, oh, if there's another person in this room who's watching them, the audience understands that that person is there, but the character doesn't. And that's all done through the camera. So in some ways, as much as horror is kind of maligned, it is like a place where you do things with shots in this very deliberate way that do a very specific narrative and emotional thing that is, I mean, it, it happens in all good movies, but it, it's something that you can do really well in a horror movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, because a lot of it, and I, and I feel like, you know, this relates to, uh, in a great way, to, to stuff that I see in X. It's like the design of a sequence, like how a sequence is designed and the way Ty just draws it out. Like I'm waiting for that alligator. I'm waiting for the alligator and it's there and I'm seeing it. Or Like I, the perfect example, when Martin, actor Martin, is uh, walking into the barn and he's looking for RJ. Mm -hmm. and we, you know, we're with him and he's walking along and then the camera just on its own drops down to the floor and there's the board with the nail sticking out and he's out of focus and the board with the nail is in focus and we just hold on that until he walks all the way up and you know yeah. what has going to happen and you know what's going to happen for a long time until it finally happens. And it, so there's no surprise in it, but that's very much like the shot taking the audience through the experience you know it's the shot telling you like oh you better start getting anxious about him walking towards this board because you know what's gonna happen you know there's no surprise like, the camera is just very much telling you you know very much kind of taking you on that journey you know that's funny. Well, yeah. And I even think, though, that like you do some amazing misleads. I'm trying to remember the exact sequence it was in, but there's a shot. Someone's in a bathroom and we're like looking straight down and we're waiting for something. And there's like a bluish light coming in through one of the windows that's clearly in frame. And I'm like, it's coming through the window. Like in my mind, my brain's saying it's coming through the window and then it doesn't. And it's like, oh, God damn it. Like, I don't even know. This like RJ crying in the bat in the, yeah. in the tub after the whole thing has gone down with his girlfriend and everything and yeah i mean that was very much like you don't expect in a horror movie in that genre to have the guy in the shower naked breaking down 
You know what I mean? Like it's it's a bunch of defying expectations, kind of. But it was very effective because, like I said, uh, like what what Ty does that no one else does is he breaks my ability to even have an expectation. Like, and so I can almost experience it. I, I experience it like someone who hasn't seen eight, 80 million horror movies. Not being a fan of horror, Ty very much like he's steeped in it. Like that's when he was a kid that was like go-to for him. So his knowledge of the genre is like encyclopedic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go back. And the question I always want to know from everyone is what was the moment in your life when it occurred to you that being a cinematographer was a thing you could do? Well, when I was in college, I was working at a movie theater. I was growing up in Eugene, Oregon and went to the UVO for a while and worked at this uh, little art house movie theater and ended up being the projectionist. And simultaneously with that, ended up taking a class in film studies at the University of Oregon, taught by a guy named Carl Bybee, that just, I saw all these movies I'd never even knew existed, all French New Wave and German New Cinema and movies from the America in the 70s and things like that, that um, I suddenly realized like, oh, movies can be this, this, it's not just necessarily this entertainment. There's like a whole social conversation. There's a whole cultural, you know, it just, it just opened my eyes. And then, you know, I think I, I ended up going to film school for graduate school at NYU and I was, you know, intending to be a director, but I had a big background in still photography that I had been doing for years through college and stuff like that. And I just ended up sort of shooting everybody's movies in film school because they needed somebody who could do it and not like, screw them up basically. And it kind of just, it sort of went down that path. Like I just sort of pursued it from that point on. And what was it about it that made you fall in love with it or fall in enough like with it that you decided that that would be the career path? You know, it's funny because it's like, I've always enjoyed photography and I think it was in some ways something that was kind of a, a demonstrable skill other than, whereas like directing was sort of this amorphous thing. You had to kind of sell people on, you know, your vision and what you're going to do and stuff like this. Whereas like, if you had shot a bunch of stuff, you could say, this is what I can do. And for me, I guess part of my brain is kind of that technical side of things. Like I like to understand, I like to kind of learn about technologies and crafts and things like that. And I just sort of drifted and went down that road, you know? So what were you studying when you were a projectionist in Eugene, Oregon? What did, what did you think your career was going to be at that time? <laughs> what happened was I got uh, matriculated in U of O uh, along with a friend of mine while we're still seniors in high school because we had finished all the math and science in our high school. And so we went to the U of O to do physics and math. And then I kind of burned out on that in about a year. <laughs> and then I thought like, oh, I'll go and I'm going to transfer to the University of Washington and go to film school there. And then I got myself up there and realized, oh, they closed the film department. And so I was like, oh, I guess I'll do philosophy because that's the other thing I was interested in. And then uh, and I'll just wait and go to film school for graduate school. And so I kind oh, of- Oh, so you were, you were already kind of headed, headed in a film school direction. Yeah. You know, it was, there wasn't any, like, it was something I had discovered and I was interested in and there wasn't really anything else that seemed like I wanted to do, you know, but then of course, in my complete like inability to plan anything, uh, <laughs> the University of Washington had closed their film department. So I was like, oh, I like philosophy too. So I got an undergraduate degree in philosophy. Dumb question, but does philosophy play any part in how you do what you do? Do you think about that stuff? I think what I always say is that my philosophy degree and the time that I spent having to do that mostly taught me a way of thinking about things as opposed to like a specific philosophy or a specific thing it instilled this way of reasoning in my brain that like, I think to this day is still sort of how I, I tend to look at things and I, how I tend to reason things out. And so I think it's, I mean, I, I can't say it would be the same if I hadn't done it or I did, I don't know, 
But like, that's what I feel like I got out of it is sort of this logic and this way of like reasoning from point A to point B that is, was very much informed by all the philosophy I read. I was very interested in ethics, you know, the reasoning of like what's right and what's wrong and what should you do as opposed to, you know, or shouldn't do that kind of thing. So you go to NYU and then out of grad school, I tend to see two pathways for a lot of people who are pursuing cinematography. One is go work in the lighting department or the camera department or whatever and work your way up. And the other is go work on lower budget stuff as a cinematographer and work up as a cinematographer. And based on what I found of your in your resume and your IMDb, it looks like you did the latter, but I'm not sure. Yeah, very much so. When I was at NYU, I shot a short film for a woman named Hannah Wire that went on to win the short film prize at Sundance in like, I want to say it was like 92 or 93 or something like that. And that led to her getting the opportunity to do a feature with Good Machine in New York. And so I, I miraculously went along with her and did that. And then simultaneously, I hooked up with a guy, a lot of contacts in the music business, basically. And we started making music videos together. And then I, I left New York, moved to San Francisco. And at that point, I was like faced with like, well, I could start ACing or I could simply just doggedly pursue this shooting things because I have enough stuff that enough people here and there will occasionally hire me to do something. And I just bit the bullet and like basically didn't make any money for 20 years and um, <laughs> shot stuff, you know? So, but you did some, you did some really interesting stuff and like, I haven't been able to, I was looking for all of your music videos that, and the one that, that immediately jumped into my head was uh, Lemonheads. It's a shame about Ray, which I had seen back in, you know, whatever the early nineties when I was in college and revisited that. But it's kind of like, you know, sometimes we'll talk, like we talked to Larry Fong who shot losing my religion and bunch of other stuff and there's there's something kind of magical about the veneer of what the music video world was like at that time or not i don't i don't know like you know what what was it like making music videos in a moment where like mtv still played music videos and they were still in a, in a way driving culture and there was like a healthy middle class of music videos like today you you know you'll have a Nicki minaj video and and then you know a smaller band will you know basically figure out how to pay nothing for it <laughs> like what was it like at the time you know, that was, I think it was kind of like the heyday of the music video thing, like in the early to mid nineties. And it's just like you're saying, like there were all these sort of mid-level things where you could go, I mean, it was a kind of constant scramble because it's like you would do a music video, it'd be like two weeks later, it's either is on MTV or it isn't. And it's either a hit on MTV and you're getting other offers or you're not, and you're having to scramble. And, you know, it was very sort of like, a, a constant chasing after both the work and like the next thing to do and what's cool and what's not and you know all this business and it provided for doing so many things like you could you just try stuff you know like over and over again you're just like well you know let's try this tilt shift lens let's try you know melting plastic and putting it as a filter in front of the lens let's try like we did all just kind of all kinds of different things and it was just an opportunity to just be shooting a lot of stuff you know mm. So on a, like on a picture level and on a tech, on a craft level, you were getting all this experience. I, I don't know that it didn't relate on a filmmaking level so well to like narrative projects, you know, and, and I think you saw a lot out of like the nineties where a lot of people became very successful music video directors. And then only a few of them made the transition into becoming successful yeah. narrative people because it's kind of a, there is a different process to some degree about the way you think about it. So you had a number of, of features, including uh, Crocodile for uh, Toby Hooper. 
I think the first thing I ever saw of yours that I that where like your name caught my eye was Night Stalker, which oh yeah, um, which I saw. Believe it or not, at Sundance, I, I think it was in like two two thousand or two thousand one movie at, at yeah. Sundance, yeah. And and I just remember it looking great, but it's like already. Let's go back to Crocodile and kind of talk about like as someone who wasn't really a, a horror fan, and and to my knowledge, you didn't have any horror stuff before that. How did you end up in Toby Hooper's orbit at all, and what was it like working with you know a legend, a visionary? I don't even really know how it was that he got my reel. It was kind of a funky situation because they had started shooting it in L.A. And they were trying to do it non-union and they got shut down and they fired everybody. It was kind of a bad scene, I guess. And But then like months later, they restarted the thing down in Mexico. And unbeknownst to me, I just get this call and was like, you want to go like down to Mexico? This Toby Hooper is senior work. And he's like, they're frantic to get a DP down there. And I was like, okay. And I get down there. I'm like, oh, this is kind of like a weird, like non-union, like, you know, but it was. It was prior to me being in the, you know, I was living in San Francisco at the time. It was just, it was weird. So, and I mean, I just sort of was dropped into it. Like it, it was like, I had, I think a telephone interview with him at the time beforehand. And it was like, I don't even remember. It was, it was just utterly bizarre. And then the experience down there also was, it was pretty kooky. Um, <laughs> That's yeah. I mean, that's, it's awesome that you got to work with him. I always felt like he was, you know, one of, one of the greats has made just some really iconic films, but also you never quite knew what you were getting with a Toby Hooper film, which is part of what was cool about it. You know, like as, as a viewer, I, I mean, he was, I enjoyed him so much. Like I had a really good time down there with him. We didn't stay in touch after it or anything like that, but like just as a human being, I found him to be just fascinating and great. I mean, he was kind of on another planet, you know? And it was really early in my career too. And, you know, I mean, very kind of late it is, I guess. And so just the fascination of like the way this guy did things and his approach to everything was um, just eye-opening to me, you know. He had a big handful of colored pens that he was like, he would line the scripts and make different notes in different colors based on whether it was a character thing or a shot thing or like some other note, like all the different colors had a different meaning to him, you know, and he was very kind of meticulous about it. And he had distinct theories about how you shot like horror, right? Like he was very specific about this one shot in Crocodile where like this person goes into this bathroom because they've been pursued by the crocodile and they sit down in in this little bathroom. I think it was in a store or something like this. They're just like catching their breath, right? And then all of a sudden the crocodile bursts through the wall right next to him, right? And he was like, this has got to be a seat jumper. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, it's a seat jumper. We can't do this with a cut. You got to do it. You got to show the wall. You got to go over like that. And then boom, it happens right there. And you haven't cut to it. It just happens. It's a seat jumper. And I'm like, oh, okay. I was like, I get that. Like he wants it to set up in such a way that like you're thinking it's one thing and you've shown it is one thing, but then it turns into a different thing without cutting to it becoming a different thing. Because to him, the cut would give away the fact that something was going to happen. And so for it to be a seat jumper, you needed to do it all in one shot in a way that essentially kind of showed the safety of it and showed the thing and made you feel like, oh, okay, we're in this moment that's going to be fine. And then right when you don't expect it, the, the fineness disappears. So it was just things like that. It was like, I mean, this is one that I remember very specifically, but, you know, he had, he had done a lot of movies and he had done a lot of work. Yeah. He, you know, he was a good director for sure. Yeah, I feel like he was very underappreciated in, in his time. So, and it really was like just a couple of movies after that, that you did, you did Night Stalker. Did playing at Sundance open up doors for you? Did it, was it, a, was it a game changer for you? Not so much with that movie. You know, I mean, the, the one that I mentioned before, the short that I did, which was a, a number of years before that, The Salesman and Other Stories. And that was the one that won like the short film prize at Sundance. 
I think that much more pushed the ball along than Night Stalker playing in, at midnight. Although it certainly that's another good thing to have happen for sure. And you know, Chris Fisher, the guy that that directed that movie, he's gone on now. He's had a, a very uh, excellent career in television, and we keep trying to work together again, but it just never seems to line up. But he was another guy that you know I I did uh, three or four movies for him over the years. And it doesn't look like it was too long after that that you started working in television with CSI, although you've kind of jumped back and forth from features to TV. Was there any, at the beginning, was there any, was there a different vibe about TV? You know, shorter schedules, lower budgets, you know, or steadier work? <laughs> yeah, steadier work is really the thing that happened for me because it was like that one episode of CSI kind of, it was a real job that came out of the blue again through the agent that I had at the time because that CSI was doing like, the network wanted like an extra episode that year for, and I have no idea why. And so they were in the middle of like prepping one and shooting another. And so they needed to come up with a complete new crew to, to do this one episode, which miraculously I got the job for that. And that really at the time didn't seem to lead to anything. It was just sort of that one, one job and then it was done. But what ended up happening was when I moved to Portland, Oregon and Grimm came along, the person who was initially hired as the DP on Grimm had done CSI. And, and when I went in to talk with him, that played a role in subsequently, you know, my role on Grimm, which then ended up going for six years. <laughs> but that was, you know, I was living in Portland. And so it was like, this is great. I'm in Portland. I have a great job shooting a good show. I will just do this until it ends, you know? And so that's what happened with that. And, and I was very aware at that time too, because it was right after the financial crisis and like most of the independent movie work that I was doing and stuff like that just evaporated with the financial crisis. You know, there was a couple, two or three years there where like, there was nothing going on. I mean, even now, I feel like the indie film world is still kind of shaken from that time. So the independent film slump encouraged you at least to steer into television? Yeah, well, I mean, it was. I had the opportunity with Grimm mm. to shoot a TV show, um, and so I did it. And then it was like six years of doing it because the thing went on and on and on. And I think really over that kind of six-year period there was a time streaming hadn't really come along yet. It was also a little bit prior to the renaissance in what we call television now. And so I was in Portland doing the, that show for a bunch of years where there was a lot of real big changes in the industry. And so when it came out of the other end of it, it was like, huh, this is kind of just different now. Like, it's not like there's going to be two or three, four independent movies to go shoot every year. They just seem to be gone. But oh my gosh, look at all this TV work that there is. You know, you kind of like on some level, you don't have full control over the choices that you get in terms of like, you know, who's going to ask you to shoot something or what project you're going to get on. You can certainly try, but you know, a lot of it's based on what you've done before and people yeah. wanting you to, you know, you've proved that you can do that. So, you know, I had proved that I could be a TV DP. And so it kind of has gone from it and it's great. Like I've done a bunch of the project, like I'm, I'm on Perry Mason for HBO right now. And that's amazing. Like that's an amazing show to shoot. It doesn't, you know, whether it was a TV show or a movie, it would, still be amazing you know <laughs> yeah yeah well and you know hbo you know kind of the gold standard like when you see stuff on a network like hbo like doesn't get any better than that like everything looks great the visual effects are great the acting is great the writing is great like i love that they'll even take they'll they'll say ah fuck it and they'll uh they'll hold off on production till the scripts are good for some of their shows which they've been known to do yeah so, yeah and, you know, I got to say Snowfall, too, was an amazing experience for me. At the beginning, when John Singleton was there, 
meeting him and, and yeah. working on a production that's like, you know, that was his baby, you know, it's like, that was a real gift, you know? And, you know, it's just been like, I think with television, it's kind of like somehow on a bigger scale, the, the equivalent of like what the music video thing was in the past, you know, because you just, you do a lot and you get to try things and you, you know, you're every week you're shooting and you're shooting and you're shooting and you're prepping and shooting and you're prepping and shooting, you know, and it goes on for six yeah. months or whatever. You just, you're real immersed in it. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. So let's start to wrap up. Is there anything that you can say about the upcoming Pearl? I was so glad that I waited through the end of the credits of X to see what I, I thought. Like at first I was like, is this, is this a joke? Like, is this kind of a goof? And it, cause there's a full on trailer for a prequel to X sort of at the end called Pearl. And then, then I, I went home and I looked it up and I'm like, sure enough, Pearl is a movie that, that you guys made back to back with X, correct? Yes. Yeah, we did it with, we wrapped X and then we went into pre-production on Pearl. Tom, the production designer turned over the farm and made it as if it was brand new in 1919 instead of rundown from 1979. Mm. And yeah, we went basically straight into it. And the best thing to say about it is like a completely different movie. It has a look of like a widescreen Technicolor musical from the thirties or something like Whoa. it's super saturated colors. It's super bright. There's like arbitrary gobo patterns of window shadows on walls. And there's like dancing and singing and what? dancing numbers. And, I mean, it's a totally completely rad. Ty West musical. We're at, well, Ty West it, musical. It, it, if we had more time, I think he would have actually made it be a musical, but we didn't, re he didn't have time to get the, like to do that, but it, borders you know it centers around this girl who wants to have a dancing career basically and so there's a, there's dance numbers in it and stuff like it's the prequel and it tells the story and it has a real tie-in and a real understanding like you understand oh this is where pearl the woman in x came from right and it tells that story and it does it really well but it's a totally different movie and it's also i in some ways i think you know i've been saying like I think Pearl in some ways is a better movie than X, right? It's not anywhere near as much fun. And it, as I said to somebody the other day, Pearl is like the best feel bad movie you'll ever see. Like <laughs> you just like watch it and you're like, oh God, this is just terrible. Like life is terrible, you know? You just, you just sold one ticket. Tell Ty you just sold, sold me and I'll bring friends. Probably my friend Yuri Lowenthal, who I went to see X with. We'll probably go see it together again. Yeah. No, everybody saw X to go see Pearl because it's like, even just to see it, just be like, wait a minute, you know, it's, it's well worth it. I mean, there's some crazy stuff that happens, but it's a different, it's aesthetically a, a completely different experience. Well, I, I mean, that's what I, I have loved about your collaborations with Ty West over the years. It's just, I, I never know what to expect. And I, and I think that ha having my expectations shaken like that is great. So before we go, where can people find you online if they want to interact with you, say hi, see your work, any of that? I have a website, elliotrocket.com. It's horribly out of date. <laughs> yeah. um, and I have an Instagram at elliotrocket that I basically just hear their post medium format still photography that I do, but, and I'm really bad at like, uh, I've, I've gotten better at understanding that people are trying to message me through Instagram. So I do, uh, that was how you reached us. Right? Didn't, didn't, didn't yeah. Yeah. Because a friend of mine told me that you guys had mentioned the, the X and stuff on a, on one of the podcasts mm -hmm. and he was like, and then, so I listened to it. And I thought, oh, that's great. And then getting a hold of you through Instagram was just the most obvious way of doing it. But I'm trying to become better at the whole social media thing, but I, I, I kind of doubt it'll 
really ever come get it. But, <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, people can get me. Uh, I think I have my, you know, my email is just elliotrocket at gmail.com. And people Uh-oh. periodically <laughs> email. Well, no, I just get random emails here. I mean, I'm sure that's fine, you know. Um, I try to respond to people. You know, it's not like I get a cascading flood of things, you know. That's well, that ends now. Cinematographer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Elliot. Uh, just amazing work. It's great to, great to meet you and talk to you. Great. This was really fun. Thanks for having me, for sure. This episode of the Cinematography Podcast is brought to you by Aperture. Aperture has announced a new version of their LS600, the LS600D. This version of the LS600D is a more basic version of the LS600D Pro, but it is the same basic lighting unit without some of the Pro features. They've taken away the weatherproofing and removed the support for wireless DMX via CRMX, which adds up to a smaller, lighter box. The LS600D Performance has the same light output and color accuracy as the LS600D Pro. The LS600D comes with the same rolling case, cables, and 600 series hyper-reflector as the Pro version. Having less features on the LS600D can work well in a studio setup. The extra expense and weight that goes into weatherproofing isn't necessary. And if you use the wired DMX or the Sidious Link app to control the unit, you wouldn't need the CRMX support. The Aperture LS600D also costs $500 less than the LS600D Pro at $1,390. If you know that most of your use will be indoors, Saving money on the simpler unit could be well worth it, especially since you can always cover the light for an outdoor shoot. The slimmed down LS600D is available for pre-order from Hot Rod Cameras. And now back to the show. And now, short ends. So that was Elliot Rocket. Hey, thank you so much for being on the show. It was really a great conversation. And, yeah. and hey, hey, Ben, I got to throw out that I was just listening to your conversation with, with Jendra. And boy, was that a great interview, too. Uh, Ginger's awesome. It was so exciting to talk to her again. Uh, hopefully we can have her on the show sometime soon. And she said so many nice things about us, too, which was wonderful. I know. Too. That was great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like it when people say nice things. Anyway, I, know, um, I was like, yeah, cool. So it is now time for our patent pending short ends segment. What is your pet obsession of this week? Well, I can't help it being an obsession because it's been an obsession and there's actually a I think probably a terrible video somewhere on the Cam Noir site of me going to an NAB, a National Association of Broadcasters convention, uh, many years ago. I notoriously despise this convention, but I have to go because it is the sort of the bellwether for the technical side of the motion picture industry. And uh, I got to go there to meet some of the manufacturers and have conversations. And I got to meet some some customers. I love NAB. I can't believe you don't like it. (laughs) I love going and I can't really go this year, but I, I haven't been in years. But I, I would always love going there and seeing like the demos of all the new gizmos and uh, new editing software and all that shit. Well, it's like a lot of people show up. Yeah, I don't remember exactly how many, but it's, it's somewhere in the many tens of thousands, probably close to 100,000. And it, it takes up like millions of, of square feet of floor space. But I have a feeling it's going to be much smaller this year. Yeah. You know, COVID has probably knocked out a lot of international visitors. Also, like a lot of vendors just said they weren't going, right? 
Yeah, a lot of them did. So uh, I cut my trip way, way down. It's not going to be like Coachella where, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of people out there packed in, you know, body to body, maskless, most likely unvaccinated. It is uh, it is a trade event and it's going to be spaced out a bit more distant. And I expect most people to be wearing masks and stuff there. And uh, it is Vegas. So I, I don't know. I think that there is going to be a little bit more of a somber and like strictly down to business attitude. I haven't seen a ton of like, we're having a party. Come party party with us over at this club and let's, you know, let's do all this stuff that kind of comes along with the NAB thing, which also I generally can't stand. It's like uh, some of those people know how to throw a party. Most of them do not. And uh, yeah, and certainly not appropriate uh, business parties. And so mercifully, most of that is, is gone this year. But I do need to go and I do need to talk to some people and I do need to see some things. And frankly, I think I'll have tons of stuff to report. There's already been a couple of announcements that have come out that I'm, I'm privy to that I, I believe are public, uh, which is interesting because there is still gear innovation going on. Lots of new technical stuff that's going to be announced and is already announced because it, it really starts Sunday and then goes for like five days. Uh, I'm only going for one day. I'm coming right back and I will have a report in, in our future and probably in our episode next week. Oh, cool. I'm excited about hearing what, what's happening at NAB. And uh, NAB has, holds a special place in my heart because we did our first recording of the Cinematography Podcast in your hotel room with Jason Wingrove like eight yes, years way, ago. Way back when. That yeah, was a long yeah. time ago. Yeah. And I think that might have been, honestly, that might have been the last time I went to NAB. I haven't been in a long time. Uh, mostly, I've just, like around that time of the year, for whatever reason, I, would, I kept getting busy. And now I have a kid and that makes it even harder. You're but missing I, nothing. I, I really feel like you're missing nothing. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what what happens with the other trade events, because actually right on hot on the heels of NAB is the Portland Lens Summit. So it's, it's really all about high end cinema lenses. But if that is your cup of tea, it's like you can't beat that. It's the only uh, event like that in this country, for sure. And probably the best one in the world. Everybody, everybody's there. And then they also have a thing going on that same weekend they call Mini Gear, which is like a grip and lighting sort of like mini show. And then Cinegear is right after that, just like, you know, a few weeks after that. And then Hot Rod, we used to have our famous Cine Beer, which I knew a lot of people love to, to come to. But uh, I don't think we're going to do Cine Beer this year. And I'm not even sure how Cine Gear is going to go. So really, we would do live recordings uh, of the podcast that's right. at, at Cine Beer. So I'm going to NAB to kind of judge. And like, like I said before, it's a bellwether. I, I want to find out how what the appetite is for people to go to that and how much stuff is really going on. So I can kind of judge what's happening maybe the rest of the year. I mean, I know that the whole world has basically decided, guess what? We're moving on. We're living with an endemic now. It's not a pandemic. We're just going to, you know, do our best and, and hope for the best. So I don't know what the what the industry says, because the industry has been pretty conservative, I, I would say. And uh, now uh, a lot of the technical side is just like, fuck it. <laughs> I mean, really, what they're coming down is just saying, like, fuck it. We're just going to we're going to we're going ahead. And, uh, you know, we had our first event uh, a little while ago and it's an in-person event. And uh, I thought two people would show up and it was like 27 people or something. And hey, I, I call that an unqualified success. So I, I think that really vaccination rates are high. Uh, people are being relatively safe. Although you, when you see the footage from like Coachella, you kind of go like, wow, I don't know what's going to happen with Coachella, but I heard an estimate that as many as 1500 people will be positive after that uh, uh. event this year. Oh, they, they only have 200 confirmed right now, but it's early. But Bishop Briggs, one of the performers who's pregnant, uh, tested ended up testing positive after her first performance. And so now she's canceled her second performance. And it's like, mm. yeah, I don't know. Look, it's uh, I am so sick of wearing masks and I'm really <laughs> into the idea of like going back to normal. But our corner of the industry is is taking a stab at it. I don't know how well it's going to do. I hope I hope we do well. I really do. 
Ben, what is your short end? Let's get away from my short end. My short end is going off the rails is what really what it is. <laughs> my short end is, I mean, I, I think that this is in the realm of something that would have been announced at NAB, but a lot of the post stuff, like last week I was talking about Adobe Premiere, the post stuff is just being announced around the time of NAB, and I don't know if they, I don't know if they're going to have a presence there or not. I bet I could, that's easy to find out. But it is DaVinci Resolve, and I have Kay's Alatraxi, our beloved Kay's Alatraxi to thank. He's very in love with uh, everything Black Magic design does and is constantly uh, talking up DaVinci Resolve to me. And a couple of times I've kicked the tires on DaVinci Resolve and come away with the conclusion you would think I would come away with, which is I don't feel like learning a new way to do the thing that I'm already doing with something else. So I'm just going to stick with Adobe Premiere. But I have to say the new Resolve is definitely worth a shot. And I also for years have been saying to people when they ask about like, if I'm starting editing, what do you recommend? I always recommend Resolve because there is a free version of it that works really well. Uh, the full version of it is only 300 bucks, And if you buy a Blackmagic design product, you'll get a free install of it anyway. And I mean, DaVinci has been the gold standard in color correction since you and I were in film school. Uh, since before then, DaVinci was making, you know, boxes that were in the room where you would, you know, transfer your, your film and you would do power windows and stuff like that. And, you know, when they spun it off into its own nonlinear editing system, I don't know, whatever, 10 years ago, it took a while for it to really find its legs. But they did some interesting things. And this isn't new. They acquired Fairlight and Fairlight was a hardware based competitor to Pro Tools. So completely professional sound editing. They have a program called Fusion that's part of it that's sort of like After Effects, but that's what I kept saying to anyone who was like, just just use this instead. I'm like, what about After Effects? What about Photoshop? Like in, in the Adobe suite, what makes the Adobe suite so awesome is that it has these tools, but there are other tools you can get. And what they've started doing in Resolve is putting stuff in there that's kind of After Effects-like. Like there's motion tracking in there now. And uh, the specific tool that I've been watching some stuff on that I think looks really cool is it can look at a shot and I don't know what, how it's doing this math, but it could create a depth map from your shot. And what that means is you can choose your depth of field. I don't think that you can make an out of focus thing be in focus, but if I wanted to take the shot of you that I'm looking at on our zoom window here, I could throw the background normally like optically looking out of focus. I don't know what kind of crazy math it's using to do that, but it's actually really impressive if you look at it. I wonder if it's one of those things that I'm going to start to notice people doing and it'll have a tell, like it will, it'll look a little weird. But from the stuff I've seen online, it doesn't look weird. You know, and the thing is that it is substantially cheaper to get your hands on Resolve than it is to get an Adobe Creative Cloud subscription. And uh, some editors that I know, uh, like on Twitter, who, people who I follow are like, yeah, no, I, for the first time ever, I'm really thinking about jumping ship from Premiere. So I'm not personally jumping ship from Premiere. I have like three projects I'm currently working on in Premiere. So I couldn't do it right now if I wanted to. But I might give Resolve. I have a project I might be doing a little bit later this year. That's a shortish project. And I might give Resolve a spin to see if it has the kind of legs because it's got all the same shortcuts and all the same filters and all the same everything that Final Cut Pro 10 and Avid and Premiere all have. So it's pretty awesome. Definitely check it out. Uh, I agree. I think it's uh, it's it's great software. 
for sure. And uh, Adobe is definitely going to be at the at the show. You know, they acquired Frame.io. I know Frame.io has a big announcement with Atomos of a, you know, camera to cloud recording type of thing. There's a, the innovation has not stopped over the last uh, couple of years. There's, a, I think, a, a ton of, of, of information and stuff and new features that is going to be coming out from most of the, the, the companies. But I'm sure all the ones that are exhibiting and undoubtedly we're going to have plenty of stuff to wade through in the coming weeks. I know there's a new light that's really going to be amazing. So, yeah, but I, I can't wait to hear what the new uh, Resolve announcement will be as well too because uh, black magic always has a press conference like you know the very first day of nab and there's probably some new uh, uh resolve stuff well, that's going to be in there as well you would know this better than i would would do you think adobe and black magic are like holding back on some of the announcements or did they already announce all of the features because they've already uh, like adobe's already uh, both of them have already, you can download the new software and, and work with it i have been working with the new adobe software uh, Black Magic usually keeps their cards pretty close to the, their chest, and usually it's day one, like nine o'clock in the morning, ten o'clock in the morning. They have a press conference, and then there's a, a bunch of announcements. They have sort of been been putting some stuff out there the last uh, few days, though, too. So you know, it'll be interesting to see what what happens. Uh, they usually have uh, one surprise uh, or another. I'll, I'll I'll put it that way. Well, cool, man. I think that about wraps it up. Who should we thank as we wrap up before you uh, take off and go to Las Vegas, Nevada? Let's thank Alana Cody first and foremost. You know, uh, I know she's working on a bunch of stuff for us. I know we've got some new interviews that, that, are, that are sort of percolating. I know we're looking at like possibly some cool panel, more panel discussions and then partnerships and, you know, collaborations and things. So so let's thank her. Thank you for uh, for listening to this show and making sure that uh, we're all on track. Who else should we thank, Ben? Uh, we should, as always, thank Ben Katz for editing this. And I don't think we made his life very easy today. So thank you, Ben Katz. Yeah. And let's thank Kay Zalatrachi. Kay's who I still am remiss and have not said, let's get our episode in the can. Let's do it this week. Can we Can we do it this week, Ben? You and I get, I get can, on the phone. With, I, we can yeah. probably do it. Yeah, yeah. I, All right. I, let, let, let's try to make that, make that happen. All right. That, thank you, Kay's. Thanks for all the music that you put forward into this. And, you know, eventually I'm sure uh, you are going to tutor me in some sort of life lesson that completely changes my life and makes everything better for me. So I'll, so thank you in advance for whatever that might be. <laughs> well, uh, that about does it. Uh, thank you uh, for listening and we will see you next week. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.